Saturday, March 3rd here at Creekside at 6.30 p.m. Uh, Emmaus Bible College is uh, presenting the Ensemble Concert Choir. So this is a group of uh, college students from uh, Emmaus Bible College, which is a uh, Christian college in, in Dubuque, Iowa, and they will be uh, coming and just having an evening of, of praise and, uh, and special music. So uh, everyone is invited to that. If you want some information or just a reminder, you can grab one of these sheets from our welcome table. Uh, speaking of which, if you are a newcomer today, we'd love to get to know you better. And uh, under every chair, there is a, or almost every chair, hopefully, there's a little slip of paper that you can jot down your contact info, and someone uh, would love to just reach out to you, maybe get to know you better, and uh, introduce themselves. So uh, uh, I hope everyone made it in okay without uh, any ice falls. Um, it's just kind of like that time of the year where it seems like there's rain and ice and snow, and it changes every hour. So... Uh, we are glad to have everyone here. We are going to pass the offering, uh, but first let's just uh, commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the chance to worship you uh, with our voices, with our hearts, with our minds. We pray that you would be glorified in our time together this morning. Father, you are the matchless king, and you deserve all of the glory and the honor and the praise. Lord, so we just pray that you would tune our hearts to uh, worship you and to adore you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Well, we are planning to do an Easter egg hunt here. Um, I remember nine years ago, I think it was, the first time that my family and I showed up at Cornerstone Church, um, there was an announcement that there was an Easter egg hunt being planned for, for the day before Easter. And so that's been a, a great thing to be part of year after year. Um, you want to jump to the next slide there, Adam? But it's always good to ask, why, why do we do stuff? Why do we do the things that we do? And so just by way of reminder, we want to do this to meet our neighbors, to be hospitable to our neighbors, and, and most importantly of all, to share the good news of salvation through Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. And Easter, you know, it, this is an Easter egg hunt, but Easter is not about Easter eggs. Easter is about the death and resurrection of our Savior and the good news that that makes available to us for salvation. So we want to share that. We take advantage of, of the season to share that with our neighbors. But we need some things. And one thing we need, uh, which might not be obvious, is uh, somebody to coordinate this event. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a stand-in here right now, I hope. <laughs> but we have a list of, of activities that we've done in the past and who can help out with them. It's not some, we don't need somebody to do all the work of it, we need somebody to coordinate it. So that's not on the list, but um, we, do, we do need that. And then we need your prayers for this. This is not just a, an event that we're putting on through you know, sheer force of of our wills, we're looking to, for God's blessing on it in the gospel as we share that with our friends and our neighbors. Uh, we need many dependable volunteers, and so to that point, I'm going to be passing around a sign-up sheet. There's, there's kind of two kinds of sheets, one for uh, March 31st, which is the day of the Easter egg hunt, and there's one for March 24th, which is a week before when we'll be 
stuffing eggs and passing out invitations to our neighbors. So look at those sheets, sign up if you think you can do it, and then somebody will be in contact with you about details of time and place. We need eggs, plastic eggs, um, and we have a goal of 6,000 eggs. Um, and I've heard that some people have a bunch stashed at home for next year, so or from last year, so we will have a collection bin out in the lobby, uh, hopefully next week, for eggs. We also need candy, plastic-wrapped, sealed candy, so that it's um, sanitary and so it is not affected by water because of the nine years that I've been involved with this, we've always had clear weather at the time of the hunt, but probably about half the time it stopped raining right before the hunt too. So when we put the eggs out, there's usually water on the ground. We want to keep things sanitary and, and dry. I went out and did a little research on different kinds of candy and how much it weighs. So 6,000 pieces comes to about 140 pounds of candy, which is a lot. <laughs> Um, but that's what, that's what we're aiming for. Uh, I invite you to consider that and prayerfully consider it. Uh, what a neat and unique opportunity we have as a church body to kind of reach out to our neighbors and the neighborhood around uh, and the community and share the gospel in a kind of a unique way. I'd like you to pray with me if you would. Father, as we prepare to worship you through the study of your word. I know that I need your grace, and I ask for each of us to be alert and attentive to your Spirit's work in our hearts. God, I ask that as we open your word, that you would not only inform our minds, but that you would transform our hearts by your grace and for your glory, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a little boy, I used to like coloring, but I never really liked coloring where you had to do the dot to dots. So some of you don't know what that is maybe, but in the old coloring books, they used to have dot to dot to dot to dot, and you had to connect all the dots to know what the picture that you were going to color was. And I never really liked that because I really wasn't too good at connecting those dots. You know, my lines were just kind of squiggly, and so it never really looked like the, the good picture. I like the lines already there, and then I can color them in. But the dot-to-dot -dot coloring book is a little bit more true to life is as a metaphor in the sense that you kind of have to move from dot to dot and connect the dots in life oftentimes to understand the big picture, to understand what God is really trying to do. And sometimes we never can even connect all the dots. And so we never really understand what God is trying to do in our life. But the gospel, uh, well, not the gospel, the epistle of 1 John, John is writing to the, the, the believers there, and he's trying to help them understand how they can know that what they profess is truly what they possess, that they possess what they actually profess. And we've been marching through this book, and there are several tests that are laid out. He says, if you know, you know that you have come to know me, if this is true, if this is true, if this is true. But if we try to distill it down, actually there are basically three overarching tests that he gives. One is a doctrinal test. What do you do with Jesus? The next one is more of a, 
a, a love test. You know, what do you do with each other? And the last one is an obedience test. What do you do with my word? You obey it or you don't. And so as we saw in the last couple of weeks when, when I was preaching in 1 John chapter 4, which is where we're at, verses 1 through 6, it was a revisiting of the Christ test, the doctrinal test. What do you do with Jesus? Who is he? Do you know that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Do you profess that truly? Then in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, we looked at, revisited again, this love test. What do we do with each other? How do we treat each other? Are we understanding and loving each other? Now, the close of chapter 4, which is where we're at today, verses 13 through 21, is in, in essence, I think, it's an expansion upon, an explanation of what he said at the end of verse 12. I'm in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. He says this, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's what he addresses in verses 13 through 21. He expands on it and he explains it more fully. John is, if you will, connecting the dots. He's trying to connect the dots so that we understand the relationship between the Christ test and the love test. If we profess faith in Christ and we love one another, he tries to relate it so that we can know for sure that we really are his children. He's connecting the dots. And so I invite you to open your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. And here in verses 13 through 21, John, he uses two tactics to solidify this, this link between God's love for us, our union with God through faith in Christ, and then the result of that, which is our love for other people. So it's God loves, God's love for us, our union with God through faith in Christ, and then our love for other people. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll try to unpack these two different tactics that he uses, beginning with verse 13 of chapter 4, 1 John. By this we know that we abide in him. By this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now there's a lot in there, but we're going to begin at the beginning. In verse 13, we see, first of all, the confirmation of life that's detected within us. And he gives three 
confirmations. Three ways we can understand and have confirmation that there is really life, that we really possess what we profess. And the first confirmation that we can have is if we possess the Holy Spirit. It's our possession of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, by this we know. That's why all through the epistle he he uses this phrase, by this we know. In other words, this absolute certainty. There's no question in our mind. By this we know. We can have absolute certainty that this is true. How do we know when it's spring? Flowers? Huh? Longer days? We get to see more sunshine? Uh, geese flying north? Some geese are not smart enough to fly south, but they, so they stay around all year, but uh, winter, but robins, you know, what? March Madness, uh, red-headed woodpeckers, you know, we, what are the list goes, we can know. In Iowa, we never really know it's spring, because sometimes there is no spring, it just goes from winter to summer. But there are tests that we can employ, and John says, by this we know that we are in him and he in us, we abide in him. Abide. What's this word abide is a, is a rich word. It means a, a vital, ongoing connection, union with God. It's something that we can't just pass off. And there's two aspects. He says, I love what he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he abides in us. Paul says this is a mystery. In Colossians, he says, one, one, and this, is a, this is a mystery, that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We abide in him, and he abides in us. And so I want to tease that out just a little bit. There's two aspects of this mystery. And this phrase, we abide in him, and he abides in us, is in some way, shape, or form mentioned three times in these few verses. It's mentioned in verse 13 and in verse 15, and in verse 16. We abide in Him, and He abides in us. So it must be important to understand that we abide in Him, and He abides in us. We abide in Him. In this sense, believers are hidden with Christ in God. This is a mystery, but it's in this sense that we are in Him, in this sense that Christ represents us. In the same way that David represented the nation of Israel when he went to battle against Goliath. And David, the whole, whole army of Israel was watching while David was out there fighting the giant. And he represented them in the same way Christ represents all who believe. And the victory that he won on Calvary is the victory that we participate in. We share in that victory. He represents us. We have, in a sense, if we're trusting in Christ and His death, and that alone is the payment for our sins, we have participated with Christ. We share His victory in the crucifixion, in His death, and His burial, and in His resurrection. And even as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we're seated with Him. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, that's a mystery. How can I be on this earth? All that Christ enjoys is true of us. Because He's our representative. Because He represents us. 
we share fully in his victory so that all that is his is now ours. Abiding in the Father. A righteous life. Loved by God. We are new creatures in Christ. That's not just pie-in-the-sky thinking. For believers, that's the reality that we live in. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But we are in Christ. We are in God. So that all that he has, we're new creatures. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times believers walk through life, they go, I don't know, I don't feel really feel new. You know, I just kind of feel like the old person. But if we are in Christ, if we are in God, we are new creations. We're completely different and completely new, and we're represented by Christ. And so that there is no fear uh, in this life of punishment, of death. I don't have to be afraid because I'm in Christ I'm in God, and He sees me, and He loves me. I don't have to frantically work my way to somehow impress, improve, or be better, or somehow earn your favor. Because I'm in Christ, and I'll never be loved more than I am now, and you'll never be loved more than you are right now. Because you are in Christ. You are in God. And then, not only are we in God, but God is in us. Now, that's... Maybe even more hard to believe that God is in us. He is in us. And it says in verse 13 how that's possible. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. It's not something we did, it's something He did. He has given it to us. And it's interesting that the form of this word given is in in the Greek in the sense that it's a past action, the effects of which continue on into the future. So it's not just a one-and-done deal. It is that we are given the Spirit, and that Spirit's presence and power perpetuates in our life. There's a tragedy in Parkland, uh, Florida, with the shooting that took place there. It's a past event, but the effects continue into the future. The Spirit of God, for every person who puts their faith and the trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God becomes a pledge this is what Paul said. You look at, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 on the screen. It says, In him you are also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption uh, of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now that's a lot of words, and Paul uses a lot of words, but basically what he's saying is the Spirit of God was given to us as a down payment guaranteeing that we are in the family. We'll get the inheritance. We're God's children. Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to give you another comforter, the spirit of of truth. This is John chapter 14 and verses 16 and 17. And he will abide in you. This is a summary of what you see on the screen. If I could give you another comforter. Interesting, isn't it? Another comforter. So who is the first comforter? Jesus. And he gives us another comforter who comes from the Father, the Spirit of God. So we have within us the Spirit of God. 
elsewhere. Believer, the believers are told, we're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Spirit of God dwells in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, he says. Paul, I quoted it earlier, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, I want to ask you, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in Christ, how much does that resonate? That, that, that Christ is in me. That I have the very love of Christ. I have the very wisdom of Christ. I have the very knowledge of Christ. The power of Christ. The grace of Christ. The humility of Christ. In my day-to-day experience, that's who I am. Really? I'm not sure we live that way. In fact, I'm convinced that most of us don't live that way. That Christ is in me. Not because of what I've done. Notice the text says He has given us of His Spirit. But that's who we are in Jesus. The Spirit of God is in us to form us and transform us into the image of Christ because we have Christ in us. That's how it's possible. And that's how we know, because His Spirit is in us to transform us into the likeness of our Heavenly Father. And the next two tests, that's the first test, is the possession of the Spirit. How will we confirm that we are truly have life? The possession of the Spirit. But the possession of the Spirit is intricately related and necessary for the next two tests to confirm. First of all, we have the possession of the Spirit. By virtue of the possession of the Spirit, then we're able to profess Christ, and only as we have the possession of the Spirit that we profess Christ, that we will able, be able to practice love. Those are the three. The possession of the Spirit, the profession of Christ, and the practice of love. We, took a, we look now at our profession of Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 14. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So here we have this profession of Jesus. It seems to me that only those whose profession has two components are truly possessing the Spirit. And the first component is personal faith. Look at verse 14. He says, and, if we, and we have beheld and bear witness. You have your Bible open, you turn back to chapter 1, verse 1, and we see similar language. We have seen with our eyes and we have beheld with, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness. So that's that idea that there's a personal attestation. There is a personal encounter and experience with, with the risen Christ. So behold refers to an eyewitness. But the word doesn't just stop there. It also carries with it, sometimes it can carry with it this idea of understanding, of spiritual insight. So that they saw it, but they didn't just see it, they actually believed it. So they beheld Jesus, and then they bore witness of Jesus. So they beheld him with their eyes, actually saw him, but they actually believed that he was who he said he was, and then they bore witness to who he was. And I would say that 
beholding and bearing witness to Jesus' true identity is not possible without believing. To behold him and to bear witness to his true identity, that he is fully God and fully man, and that he came to be the Savior of the world, not possible unless I truly believe. I have never personally interviewed someone who was a Holocaust survivor. But if someone was a Holocaust survivor, I'm guaranteeing you that their personal experience would lead them to absolutely believe that this happened. I read it in a book. I watch it on a movie or a documentary. And I believe it, but I haven't personally experienced it. And my personal experience would allow me at a different level to behold it and to declare it. That's what believers do. That's what I think John is saying. We have beheld and we bear witness. We saw it, but we actually believed it. And now we're bearing witness of it. And we're telling you about it. And it's only, that's what I think Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 10. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because with the heart we believe resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth we confess resulting in salvation. So there is this belief that results in bearing witness. And I think that's what he's saying. And then we know, and that's basically what verse 15 is all about. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him. So I'm trying to make a thing here about believing as part of this profession. So you look at the word confess in verse 15. The word confess, when I think about confess, I think always oh, he's talking. You know, he's, he's confessing. Yes, but the essence of this word in the context and grammatically is that it's a one-time deal. It's a, it's a speaking of an initial action and a conviction that was attested to at one point in time. Not something that he's continually professing, but it's a confession. He's confessing it. Jesus, and what is he confessing? What is he believing? What is his conviction? Look at the end of verse 14. That Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. God sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the conviction. And he embraced it. You and I must embrace it. And unless we embrace it, we will not profess it. I only profess and bear witness to what I truly believe. And if the Spirit of God is present within me, and I truly believe, then it will be a natural thing for me to profess. I think this is what Paul is, or John is getting to there. The Savior of the world. Notice, I love the little article there. That's, I'm not a real uh, grammatical person, but the is an article. Uh, comes before the word, so the Savior of the world. He didn't say a Savior of the world. He said, the Savior of the world. There is only one Savior in the Bible. Jesus Christ. And what did he come? The Savior of the world. That is, the fallen system, society that's in rebellion against God and in, under the control of Satan. God sent his Son to redeem us, folks, because our greatest need is for salvation, not for more money, not for better health, not for better 
relationships with others, even though God would like to see that happen on many fronts, it isn't guaranteed. What he guarantees is deliverance from condemnation, from judgment. And that's through his son. Man is sinful. What does that mean? That's kind of a dated word. It means that we're living in rebellion against God. I mean, I'm not, I want to do my own thing. How many of you really want to go the speed limit? You know? The speed limit's kind of a suggestion, right? Uh, it's kind of like that's, you know, you kind of, uh, yeah. So we, we kind of go this, no. We live in rebellion against God because that's our nature is you got rules, I've got my own idea. So we are either actively rebellion or we're passively indifferent. God, you got your plan. I don't really like that. That's active rebellion. Passive indifference is, oh, okay, I'm just going to leave you alone. I'm going to do my own thing. Either way, it's sin. And the result of sin is condemnation. We deserve God's judgment because he's a holy and righteous God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But God, in his infinite mercy, sent his son Jesus so that I don't have to pay the price because Jesus paid the price for me. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. If I turn from my sin and trust in Christ, his death becomes my death so that he died in my place so that I can live and gain new life. Anybody here ever flown on an airplane? Yeah, come on, raise your hand. This is class participation. You're flying an airplane, sure. Okay. You are either exercising tremendous faith or, a fancier word, absolute credulity. Credulity means there's no basis for what you did to get on that plane. You just had to, you just kind of blind faith. That's blind faith. And so the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is getting on the plane. It's active. The faith that the Bible talks about is never passive. It's always active. It's something that we participate in. When I get on a plane, I'm trusting that this thing is going to take off and land safely. And the people running it are going to do their job adequately. To put our trust or our faith in Jesus is to accept that his death is indeed the death I deserve and that he died for me so that I could live. And it seems to me that John is saying, we know by this, we know that we are His in Him if the Spirit of God is in us and if we are confessing, professing Jesus as the Son because we believe in who He is in our life. So there's this personal faith, then there is this proclamation. If you look at verse 14, and we have beheld and we bear witness. That's the ongoing thing. We beheld, that's the belief part. We bear witness, that's the proclamation part. We proclaim the ongoing thing. Many of you know that Billy Graham died this week. And Billy Graham's life, adult life, was a testimony to proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. God's spirit within compels all who abide in God to testify that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the only Savior of the world. And we proclaim it and we testify to it in our family room, in our classroom, 
in our boardroom, in our break room, in our lunchroom, and in whatever room. We proclaim Jesus is the Savior of the world, the only Savior of the world. And that's the natural result of the Spirit of God living in the person who professes Jesus as Savior. Recently, I was in my study, and uh, someone was in the, in the study with me, and I had a chance to profess Jesus as the Savior of the world. Uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who was the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, I heard him say that he, he takes a cab. He, I, don't think he, I don't know if he owns a vehicle, but he takes a cab everywhere he goes in Chicago because he wants to talk to the cabbies about Jesus. He wants to build relationships and get to know the, the cabbies and be able, the, the ones who drive the cabs to share about Jesus. And many of those people who are driving the cabs are not of any Christian persuasion. Okay? In fact, most of them come from other religious backgrounds. I think ch God's children possess and profess Jesus as the Savior of the world. That's what he said. Confirm. We have this life within us because we possess and profess Jesus. So the possession of the Spirit, the profession of Christ, and the practice of love. That's where he gets to in verse 16. And we have come to know and have believed. Now, I love that. We have come to know. What have we come to know? We've come to know Jesus. That's, that's the personal faith in, in the personal God, the Savior of the world. We have come to know is our conversion. Believers personalize and persist in God's love. I have come to know the love of God, not just in some esoteric way, but in a personal way. You know, it wasn't very, I wasn't very old when I first grasped my parents' love for me. And if you're here this morning and that's not true for you, I'm sorry. But it is true for me. I grasped my parents' love for me at an early age. And you know what? They still love me, and I still know they love me. I persist in that love. A child of God, if we're truly one of God's children, we have personally experienced God's love and we perpetually enjoy God's love. We, by this we know. We, we have come. And we, we grow in that love. Naturally and necessarily, the one who abides in the love of Christ, the one who abides in God, who is love, loves. When we're connected to the source of love and the sum of love, then what flows from us? Love. I want you to look at this uh, picture of this uh, volcano. What's coming out of the volcano? Lava. Where's the lava coming from? The core of the earth. It's hot molten rock down there. It's hot molten rock when it comes out. Whatever we're sourced in is what flows from us. We're connected to the Father who is love and we abide in love Then His love abides in us and we love other people. Our love for others is not the reason for but the result of our relationship with Christ. Second tactic that he employs is the consequences of love perfected. He moves from the identity 
that we are God's children because it's confirmed within us because of the possession of the Spirit, the profession of Christ, and the practice of love, to now understand and explain to us what it means to be perfected in this love. He begins in verse 17 with this phrase, by this. By what? By this we are perfected. By what are we perfected? By our possession of the Spirit, our profession of Christ, and our practice of love. We are perfected in love. As the love of Christ is in us, and as we understand the presence of the Spirit, the possession of the Spirit, and the profession of Christ and the practice of love, guess what? We grow up. We mature in our love. Our relationship with the God who is love perfects love within us. Uh, anybody here like red velvet cake? Okay, that's all right. If you don't, that's fine. I, I happen to really like red velvet cake. Do you know the indispensable ingredients in red velvet cake? Coke and buttermilk. Because red velvet cake is really chocolate cake. It just has red coloring in it, okay? If you don't have coke and you don't have buttermilk, you don't have much of a red velvet cake. It's what's inside that perfects it. What's inside makes it what it is. What's inside is the possession of the Spirit, the reality that we are related to Christ that we profess, and the practice of love that spills out over, in, and through us. That perfects love. As God's love is in us, its love is His love is perfected in and through us, and we need to be abiding in the love of Christ. And a love that's perfected has two marks to it. And first of all, the first mark in verses 17 through 18 is the confidence in our death. You say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, okay? So you say, or I'm trying to. Maybe I'm not doing very good, but I'm trying to tell you. In verse 17, it says, by this love is perfected. By what? With us. That we may have confidence in the day of judgment. The natural result of maturing love is that believers don't fear judgment. As I come to understand more fully the love of Christ for me and God's love in me, and as I demonstrate that love to other people, then guess what? I'm no longer afraid of, of God's judgment. I don't have to be afraid. Because like Christ, guess what? It says in verse 17, by this uh, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Why? Because, this is the reason, as he is, so also are we in the world. Now think about that. As he is, as Christ is now, so also are we who are connected in Christ. We abide in God and God abides in us. And so as he abides in us, we are now as he is. I'm a child of God. I'm loved by my Father. I'm walking in righteousness. I am fully forgiven. I am a person who knows God personally. Now, okay, if you know me very well, you know all that true, that's true imperfectly, okay? Because I'm kind of a, a nasty guy sometimes, you know? I don't fully live out all of 
who I am in Christ, and neither do you. But he says, as he is, so are we in the world now. Remember chapter 3? I'm going to find it here. Chapter 3. Over here it says in verse 20. In whatever our heart condemns us, and Kyle preached on this, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Here's the deal. As he is, so also is every child of God now. What, we, what he is, we have now. Now, we're all walking imperfectly. And so our heart's going to condemn us. Yeah, you're a dirty, rotten, rascal, scumbag. You don't deserve it. You know, you're right. I'm guilty. I don't deserve what Christ has said. But I am a child of God. And when my heart condemns me, guess what? God is greater than my heart. And he stands there and he says, Yeah, when you sin, you need to be rightly convicted of sin, confess that sin, and turn and repent from that sin. But that doesn't negate what I did through, you, through Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And you are my child, beloved, and never to be loved more or less by me. Walk in it. Man. And I don't have to fear. I don't have to fear that he's going to squish me like a bug. You know, some people have this God is the, you know, cosmic killjoy. He's waiting, standing up in heaven, just waiting to squish bugs, you know, that we're, we, you mess up and he's going to squish you. No, I don't have to fear judgment. I don't have any fear of punishment. And you know, he says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. I don't fear punishment. I fear not pleasing my father, but I don't fear being squished like a bug because he got mad someday and I, I messed up. Every one of us who breaks the speed limit should fear punishment. In fact, this morning I was driving to church and... Uh, I probably made some people mad behind me because the light turned yellow and I slammed on my brakes, you know. And uh, most people slam on the accelerator, uh, in Des Moines at least, when the light turns yellow. And I do that sometimes. But, you know, I'm scared to death of these traffic cameras, you know. And I, I just think, this is my little aside there, I think they make my driving less safe. Because I, I tend to be, uh, you know slamming on my brakes when I could be going through the intersection because I'm afraid that I'm going to get, you know, picture, you know, and, and then a little envelope in the mail. If we break the speed limit, we should fear punishment because we're guilty. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't have to fear condemnation because Christ paid the price, paid the debt, and that's how we know that we're his children, is that he paid the debt, we possess it, and we can have confidence in our death. I like Billy Graham who once said, heaven is where Jesus is, and I'm going to him. No fear. He's not afraid. I think, in fact, I think when he was 60 years old, he says, I'm looking forward to going to heaven. You know? Heaven is a wonderful place. Filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. I want to go there. You know? And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, 
don't, we don't have to be afraid to die. We don't have to be afraid that God is going to punish us and scrutinize us. And this is the, the joy that we have, the consequence of our being in union with Christ. And secondly, there will be compassion. The second mark of maturing love. The first mark of maturing love is no fear in death. The second love of mark of maturing love is compassion in life. And two motivations. And we're going back to familiar ground here. If you were here last week, this is like, wow, he keeps saying the same thing. I don't know about you. How many times have you told your children, turn off the lights, shut out the door, and pick up your clothes and put them in the dirty laundry? I mean, my kids are all grown and gone, and I'm still preaching that. You know, whenever they're home, whenever I'm, I mean, I'm preaching it all the time. Shut the door. You weren't born in a barn? Come on. Let's, uh, we gotta, we gotta, we're not, I'm not the guy who's standing on the edge, oh, with his door wide open, you know, and the lights all on in the house, calling his dad and say, hey, dad, guess what I'm doing? I'm standing right outside on my porch with the door wide open and the lights all on. Because we're slow to learn. So John keeps coming back, and he says, there gives us two motivations for love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We're compelled to love. Stott says all true love is a response to God's love. We love because he first loved us. Here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. This is the love of God would manifest to us that He sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That's verses 9 and 10, backwards, okay? Think about that. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us. We love because he first loved us. You see, nothing motivates our love more powerfully than a greater understanding of God's love for me personally. As I understand the depth of my depravity, I come to more fully appreciate God's mercy and I am compelled to love more consistently because I have to love in the way that God has loved me. I preached a sermon last Sunday how we should love each other and we should particularize that love and we should be thinking about our family and our church body and how we should love people. And then I went right out of this place and within about two hours, I was raising my voice in the absence of love towards somebody that I love very dearly. But God is gracious. He loved me. He knew what he was getting, you know. But he loved me anyway. He loves us in our pride. He loves us in our greed. He loves us in our selfishness. He loves us in our complacency and our apathy and our self-absorption. So how can I not love others? There's no love I can extend that is greater than what I have received. And Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. For we consider this, that one died for all, therefore all died. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And so, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died. Take away my sin. Then sings my soul. How great thou art. How great thou art. The love of Christ is the most compelling motivation for my love for others. And then there is the command. Verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love his brother whom he has not seen. I mean, that's kind of uh, logic there. I like the way Stott puts it. Every claim to love God is a delusion if it's not accompanied by unselfish and practical love for brother, our brethren. We're deluded. We say we love God and we don't love other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's a delusion. And then he commands us in verse 21. And this commandment we have from him that one, the one who loves God should love his brother also. Isn't it? John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. This is a command. Love other people. And he that loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. commanded uh, to love. I just heard a story, true story. Lady's 91 years old. You don't know this person, so don't try to pretend that you do. I don't, I'm pretty sure you don't know him. She's 91 years old. She's married to a 93-year-old man with dementia. And this woman and this man have not lived what you would consider like the most stellar godly life in all of, the, of history. But she said to her daughter-in-law, you know what? I think God wants me to make a choice every day to make my husband's life as pleasant as possible. She's choosing to make her husband's life as pleasant as possible, and he's not that pleasant to live with. Love is giving better than you get. It's acting better than you feel. And God has called us to it. So let's connect the dots. We have, if we are truly God's children, we know we're children because of the possession of the Spirit, because our profession of Jesus, because of our practice of love. And God has given us these things given us confidence, no fear in death. And he's given us compassion for the lost and for the, those around us to love them as, as we should. Just connect the dots. I don't know about you. I go, okay, so who should I be asking who I can love today? I, I, I mean, there's somebody, somebody else I know that said, you know, um, I wake up each morning and I just say, well, God, who do you want me to show love to today. Wow. 
There's a challenge. Let's connect the dots. I think about my own life. I think about yours. If you're here this morning, I'm just challenging you. I'm challenging me. Each of us, what is my identity in Jesus? Do I possess the Spirit of God? If not, hey, it's not too late. God offers you salvation. All you have to do is receive a gift by turning from your sin and trusting Christ. Uh, if we know Jesus, then like, okay, I, I, I know I got this thing down, but I'm, I'm, I'm floundering around, Lord. So let's just ask God to give us grace to help us love more consistently, to take these truths and understand that I possess the Spirit of God, to understand what it mean, means to me to be in Christ and Christ to be in me. God, help me with all that so that I can live more consistently this day for your glory. Enjoy the confidence that I have. No fear in life, no fear in death. And Lord, give me a greater heart for those who are around me that I might love them more consistently. And you know, we love because he first loved us. And as we, we turn our hearts to break bread and, and share in this cup, what, what better way to appreciate his love for us than to look at what he did for us on the cross, to ponder in a new way the cross that made it possible for all who believe to be forgiven and to possess the Spirit and to live this life of love. Only in him do we have forgiveness. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, this is the Lord's table. It's not our table. So if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're free to come up and, and take of the elements. But I want you to examine your heart. I just read yesterday, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, reminding me again of the warning there. Don't eat and drink this bread unworthily. Don't make it a routine that just you go through because everybody goes through it. But search your heart and confess your sin and get right with him. If you don't know Jesus, put your trust in Jesus and come and celebrate what God has done for you through the taking of these elements and these symbols. And if you know Jesus, then just prayerfully search your heart. Confess your sins to God. And then come up and take these elements rejoicing in what it means to be his child. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we love because you first loved us. I pray that as we take these elements, that you would remind us in a fresh way of just how much you've loved us and how much we don't deserve it. And that we would relish in your mercy and be motivated to serve you and love others more consistently. We pray in Jesus' name. because of your love that we can live and I pray that no one would leave this place without assurance that they are your child because they possess the spirit having put their faith or their trust in Jesus and his death as the payment for their sin and those of us who know you Lord may the words of this song be our prayer that because of your love we live for you in Jesus name we pray amen Lord bless you Lord,